Welcome to the 121st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Beatrice Williams, author of the new novel, A Hundred Summers. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Beatrice Williams, the author of the new novel, A Hundred Summers. Beatrice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Sure. Well, first, could I ask you to read the first page or two of your new novel, A Hundred Summers? Uh, very well. Sounds good. Uh, I'll start then with uh, with Chapter 1, uh, Route 5, 10 miles south of Hanover, New Hampshire, October 1931. 112 miles of curving pavement lie between the entrance gates of Smith College and the Dartmouth Football Stadium, and Budgie drives them, as she does everything else, hell for leather. The leaves shimmer gold and orange and crimson against a brilliant blue sky, and the sun burns unobstructed overhead, teasing us with a false sense of warmth. Budgie has decreed we drive with the top down, though I am shivering in the draft, huddled inside my wool cardigan, clutching my hat. She laughed at me. You should take off your hat, honey. You remind me of my mother holding on to her hat like that, like it's the end of civilization if someone sees your hair. She has to shout the words with the wind gusting around her. It's not that, I shout back. It's because my hair, released from the enveloping dark wool felt cloche, will expand into a western tumbleweed, while Budgie's sleek little curls only whip around artfully before settling back in their proper places at journey's end. Even her hair conforms to Budgie's will. But this explanation is far too complicated for the thundering draft to tolerate, so I swallow it all back, pluck the pins out of my hat, and toss it on the seat beside me. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about A Hundred Summers yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, you know, I guess when I was first uh, first telling my agent about this idea I had, I said it was a bit like a high society uh, meets the perfect storm. Um, I've always really been, been fascinated by the 1938 hurricane, which uh, if, if listeners aren't uh, aware of it or know the details, it, it kind of thundered ashore uh, without warning at the very end of summer uh, in September. And, uh, you know, it was really just a devastating event for New England, and it, it, it blew away entire uh, beach communities. And I just thought what would be interesting was, uh, you know, what happened during one of these beach communities during that hot and sweaty summer. Uh, and and how would that cataclysm affect uh, the world around them? And uh, so, you know, I really wanted to explore all the, the sort of tangled uh, relationships going on in, in one of these uh, classic old wasps uh, uh, social networks. Uh, and, and I'll explore a bit of a love story as well, because to me what's really interesting about the period is, uh, you know, all the transformation taking place in, uh, in sexual relationships, in romantic relationships, uh, in the culture as a whole. Sure. And, and uh, you said that you, you were familiar with the, the, the hurricane of 1938, the New England hurricane. D- did you do a lot of research prior to or, or while you were writing the book? You know, not so much while I was writing. It was more to make sure I had, you know, this or that fact straight and I'd, I'd look it up. Um, I, I did obviously a fair amount of research before I started. Um, there are several nonfiction books on the subject, and 
And what had really captured my imagination was uh, the story of Napa Tree Point, which is uh, sort of a sandy uh, sit, uh, cape, if you want to give it uh, a more dignified name, coming off of, of Watch Hill in Rhode Island. And there were some, you know, a collection of, I think, 40 or 45 uh, lovely beach cottages there. Uh, and they were all swept away, not so much by the force of the storm itself, but by the storm surge that came in a sort of a tidal wave. You know, it wasn't sort of this gradually rising water. It was literally like a bank of fog on the horizon that people sort of gradually realized was, you know, it's a, a you know, 20 foot high wall of water coming towards them. So uh, it was really this, this almost you know, tsunami that, that blew away all the houses. And the houses were never rebuilt. I mean, if you survived that, you rode across Little Narragansett Bay on your rooftop or, you know, whatever you could possibly grab onto that would float, and, and hopefully you made it across. Uh, but the, the, the spit itself, Napa Tree Point, nothing was ever rebuilt there. And now it's, it's just sort of beach and dunes um, being eaten away uh, further by, uh, by the action of the sea. Sure. Well, well, I know that A Hundred Summers is being marketed as a great summer novel or, or beach read. I, I was curious as a reader yourself, are, are there books that you consider great beach reads that, that you go back to and, and read? Uh, you know, it's, I think everyone has their own idea of what makes a great beach read. And, and obviously, if you're reading something about the beach, that it really brings it home. But I think what, to me, what makes a, a, a read a great beach read is it's just that sense of immersion uh, where, you know, you don't want to sort of take a break between chapters uh, where you just want to sit there and you can sit for hours and, and, and occupy that lovely, lazy summertime. So, you know, anything that, that's sort of big and absorbing will do that. Um, uh, and it's often, to me, it means more of uh, either a genre read or, 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 or a more commercial read because, you know, that, that, that tends to be what, I guess, absorbs us whole into the world of the novel. Um, uh, you know, I'm just looking at my bookshelf here and, and, uh, gosh, I love the Maisie Dobbs books. Those are, those are great to sit down and just swallow them whole in a single read. Um, uh, Lauren White, or sorry, uh, Karen White, uh, writes some wonderful, uh, books that are set in, in the South and they tend to go back and forth between, uh, uh, the present day and then some sort of mysterious episode in the past. And, and those are always uh, great reads. So uh, to me, that's sort of what makes to be treated great, but you know, of course, everyone has their own idea. Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned earlier about the the uh, setting of a hundred summers being the 1930s and and the changing nature of relationships and and, mm -hmm. and sexuality. Was that something that you that you uh, that you needed to research in terms of just you know figuring out the the um, social relationships and, and and how people were were you know dealing with those things at that time period? You know, it's something that I have been fascinated with since um, I think the transformative event uh, was, was when I was in college. I think it was my junior year, and I took a class on turn-of-the-century Europe. And obviously you had a lot going on at that time. Uh, there was a modernist strain in art and, and in literature, and there was all this technology going on. But the, the really, you know, that what the... What, what really turned us into the society we are today is, is the First World War and, you know, the, the cataclysm that that represented uh, for Western civilization. And 
it was really that that sort of let loose, you know, what I would call the real sexual revolution, which didn't necessarily take place in the 60s, uh, really started taking place in the 20s. Uh, you had the invention of the latex condom just on a practical level. You know, before then, uh, you know, it was either some sort of, you know, form of animal skin or or it was rubber, uh, real rubber. And, and so that, you know, is one thing that sort of allowed birth control to be much easier readily available, easier to use, pleasant to use. Uh, <laughs> uh, you had uh, fashions were changing. You had women taking a much sort of greater role in public life. You had prohibition, uh, which all of a sudden threw men and women together uh, in in public drinking situations before then. I mean, even in private homes, you would have gentlemen, you know, going off to drink brandy uh, and, and the women would go to the drawing room. So you had this kind of separation of, of social social drinking. Uh, and then after prohibition, though, you know, you'd go to speak evenings, you were kind of driven underground. And when men, women are drinking together, uh, you know, certain things naturally come about. Um, you had a general sense that the old world had broken down with these values that we had had, uh, you know, things like, you know, uh, you know, virtue and honor and nobility, um, that these things had been proven to be meaningless on the battlefield of the First World War because that was what got you killed. Uh, so there was this sense that the old rules were being washed away. You had you know, these practical barriers that were being lifted uh, to greater intercourse, uh, literally as well as, uh, as figuratively. And uh, you you also had greater numbers of women going to college. Before uh, before 1920, it was really if you were a very studious, loose-stocking sort of girl, you could maybe convince your parents to let you go to college. Uh after the 19, you know, after 1920, you had this growing middle class, growing prosperity. Um, it became sort of a status symbol to send your, 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 your daughter off to college as well as the boys. And, you know, even though the dorms and, 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 uh, you know, and, and all the rules there sort of, you know, they were, they were careful to, to make sure that there were rules and regulations in place. You know, I mean, you've got young men and women together. Uh, you know, life will find a way as, uh, I think, uh, in Jurassic Park, you know, so, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, love, love as well as life will find a way. So, you know, you really had, you know, a, a, a this tremendous growth in the sense that, you know, you could actually have sex outside of marriage and it wasn't a bad thing. You had the opportunity uh, and uh, and people started taking advantage. And, you know, it, it that was sort of, you know, it, it by the time we got to the 60s, that was really already there. And uh, I know baby boomers like to think they invented it, but uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that was not the case. <laughs> that, that's interesting. So so what was the path to publication for you for your first novel overseas? Was that the first novel you had written or had you always wanted to, to be a novelist? Well, I'd always wanted to be a novelist. Um, uh, my father wanted to steer me, as I think most uh, responsible fathers would, uh, to something a little more practical. And so I ended up getting an MBA in finance and being a management consultant. Uh, and then once I had kids, I thought, you know, I really enjoyed being home with my kids. But um, I also really felt that I did sort of need something a little more as sort of a, you know, one little pizza slice of the whole pie to call my own. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so I said, okay, I'm just going to get, I had always sort of dabbled in writing and sort of kept some sort of, you know, uh, a half-finished novel on my laptop somewhere. But I really got serious about it uh, when my third child was uh, was a toddler. 
And so I started writing and, you know, I had some ideas and yeah, I didn't quite pull it all together uh, until I had the idea for overseas, which uh, just, it was the first time I had really felt the characters and the story and the whole art kind of come together in my head. And I sat down and I, I mean, I had thought about it for a long period of time and it dealt with a historical period that I was you know, fascinated by. So by the time I sat down to actually read it, it really only took me about, you know, six weeks of a uh, very insomniac and, and, uh, all, all involving the effort. But I, I, I drafted it in six weeks, spent a few months, uh, revising and editing because uh, the heroine was actually, I've always considered myself more of a historical fiction writer, but the heroine of, of overseas, uh, and the narrator is, is a modern woman. So I had that sort of modern voice, that modern first person voice is something that I hadn't really tried before, so it took some polishing before I felt I sort of got it right. Uh, and then, you know, after brushing it up, I sent it to a few agents, and uh, really right away, um, Alexandra Machinist, she's now at, at Janko and Nesbitt, um, you know, she, she, she loved it, and we met, and we sort of, you know, clicked superbly well, and, and she's been a fantastic uh, guide and, and coach, uh, as well as agent, uh, in the past several years. That's great. So, so what's the writing process like for you? I mean, you just talked about drafting um, overseas and and kind of a six weeks kind of uh, uh, you know effort. Uh, do you do a lot of outlining or planning before you start writing, or do you do you just kind of see where the story takes you? Yeah, I I'm I kind of fall in the middle. I've I've always been you know I was the second child, and so I've always kind of been the diplomat. So maybe it's my natural uh, tendency is, is to compromise, but I. I I, I did discover in writing overseas that, that that really worked for me, even though it was a it was a brutal process in terms of not getting much sleep. And, and again, I, I do have I have four children, so it, it it's tough to pull in an all nighter when you you've got to get them to the school bus in the morning. Um, but before I do start a book, I really like to have it in my head, and I, I don't tend to outline things or write things down. I like to just I don't know picture it in my head as this sort of three dimensional puzzle. Uh, I know where I'm kind of I'm starting. I know where I'm ending. I know a few key points on the way. Uh, I really feel my characters. I know who these people are. Uh, and I, by the time I start, I want to be kind of a little bit in love with them so that, you know, I really, it gives me the, uh, the motivation to really sit down and spend time with them every day. And, and then so I, I do enjoy that period of really intense drafting where I do get that first draft out in, in six to eight weeks uh, and, you know, and then do some revision. And, and, and as I've gotten better at this, I, you know, luckily I, I don't have to do quite as much revision afterwards, but to me that's, and it's a great process. It's physically demanding, but it, it's just when you're in the throes of creativity, you know, I just, I, I may grumble a little bit about how tired I am, but I'm really probably the happiest, uh, uh, happiest, I can be is in that time. That's great. Well, well, given your success with Overseas, your first novel, and now 100 Summers, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who would like to get their own novels published? <laughs> Gosh, you know, and <laughs> definitely the road is, is different for everybody. But I would say, you know, that first book should really be the book of your heart. Uh, uh, I know you always get all this advice, well, you know, look at the market. What does the market want? You need to be able to put your book in a slot that, you know, editors and agents will recognize. 
Um, but Overseas was not an easy to categorize book. And I really kind of wrote it because I just had this idea that, you know, that wouldn't let me go. And, and so I sat down and, and wrote it and it was really, you know, that, that's not to say that I wasn't thinking about all those things like, you know, plot structure and, 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 uh, and the technical aspects of writing as I was going along. But I certainly, it was a book that, it was a, it was a story that I loved. And, and I think that really came through in the pages. And, and, and it's really that voice. I mean, if, if an agent or an editor loves the voice, you know, they're like, I can, you, know, you can, you can fix any flaws in the plots and, and characterization later. But it's, it's the voice, I think, that really captures what's going on. And, and it's the voice that, um, that attracts people to the book. So, you know, my, my advice would be, yes, you have to keep the, the market in the, in the back of your mind, but, Write what you really love because, you know, if, if you're going to try and chase trends, you know, you're, you're always going to be too late. Uh, you just need to write books that you love. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll set a new trend or, or, you know, at least, uh, at least have something that is distinct from everything else that's being, uh, submitted to, to editors, guests, and eventually to, to bookshelves in your local bookstore. Great. Well, I know we spoke about Beach Reads earlier, but I wondered, are, are there books or writers that you've read in the past year or two that, that, that made an impact on you and that you would recommend? Well, you know, it's a pretty varied lot, and, and, and I'll, I will <laughs> issue one caveat is that um, I also write, uh, and this is my agent's idea, uh, I also write historical romance under a pen name, Juliana Gray. Uh, so my uh, volume of writing has been very high this year. I actually wrote three full-length manuscripts. So, uh, oh my gosh, I, and wow. at the same time, my 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 reading uh, input has has not been as high as I like. So, uh, you know, I I it's uh, it, 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 sometimes when people ask me what am I reading now, I kind of draw a bit of a blank because I haven't <laughs> been able to read that much lately, uh, to my to my sadness. But. There's definitely a few writers that I love, and and I, I've actually been lucky enough to meet a few who have become my friends as well. But I still love their writing, so I'm I'm definitely not being nepotistic here by mentioning Lauren Willig, who uh, her um, The Ashford Affair, if you haven't read it, is this you know fantastic rendering of uh, Kenya between the wars and the whole uh, that British community there and the restlessness uh, of 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 the British in particular uh, after the First World War. And it, it bounces back and forth between modern uh, New York City and uh, and uh, England before the war and, and Kenya afterwards. And it's just a, a great read. It's a wonderful mystery that unfolds as you go along. Uh, again, Karen White is fantastic. She writes uh, really wonderful, uh, you know, Southern, I guess you call it Southern women's fiction uh, with uh, often a historical flavor to it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know what I really enjoyed reading, and it's a, it's a great fun read. It's Farewell, uh, Dorothy Parker by uh, Ellen Meister, and it, it's really a really a great. If you love Dorothy Parker and her wit and wisdom, uh, she appears as a ghost, uh, advising a sort of a mousy uh, theater critic uh, on her her life and her behavior and how to uh, how to develop a backbone. So that's a fantastic read too. That, that's great. So I, I actually wasn't aware of, of the, the historical romances that you've written under under um, a pen name. I'm, I'm curious about that. Had you had you written um, some of those prior to um, overseas? No, not at all. It, it kind of came about a bit serendipitously, serendipitously as, as these things do. Um, 
uh, Oberstein, when you sort of when you published, you know, your first book, and it was, you know, hardcover with, you know, and so there, there could be a bit of a time lag between, you know, getting the deal done and then actually the book coming out. So we're my age and I were were thinking, you know, we've got to keep you busy uh, writing because, uh, you know, you've got to keep the muscles, uh, you've got to keep the muscles flexed. So um, she said, well, what about you? Know, obviously, I, I, I. Um, my, my background was in historical fiction. My, my interest was in historical fiction. Uh, so she said, well, why not try writing some historical romance? And I said, well, actually, I do have this little idea. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my eyes sort of grew up. And for me, it was kind of nice. funny. I've gotten uh, people saying, gosh, where did she come from with this Shakespeare? But, you know, I sort of grew up in this, you know, sort of bizarre intellectual household where our vacation every year was the Ashland Shakespeare Festival in Oregon. And, uh, they kind of brought me down to false pretenses when I was five. I was thinking festivals, so there'll be rides and you know popcorn <laughs> and you know it was it was Shakespeare plays. Uh, that first year it was the Tempest and the Taming of the Shrew, and uh, we were not allowed to go to Richard III. That was considered too grown up, but uh, but I did get a flavor for it early. And, and I had always thought that Love's Labor's Lost, which is kind of a problematic play on certain levels, uh, had potential as a romantic comedy. You had uh, these four gentlemen. Uh, who sort of retired for, you know, three years of monastic seclusion away from women in order to lead lives of virtue and sort of, you know, scholastic achievement. And, of course, the first thing that happens is three, you know, lovely or four lovely ladies show up on their doorstep, the Princess of France and her ladies in waiting. Uh, and naturally, everyone falls in love, and there's all that, you know, Shakespearean comedy mixed with, you know, you know, by the servant having hijinks and the, the, you know, the, the aristocrats falling in love. And I just thought that would make a great romantic trilogy. So I sort of picked up the loose story uh, and turned it into uh, a trilogy set in uh, Florence featuring English people or, you know, Florence, the Tuscany generally in sort of the mountains. And, and you know, one of them, one set of gentlemen is, you know, leasing a castle for a year for their year you know, seclusion from society, and of course, three women show up, and they claim to have a lease on the exact same castle. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, and really enjoyed it, and we got some great reviews on it, and and so now I'm working on trilogy number two. Great, and that's been a lot of fun as well. And, and what was what was the pen name again? Uh, Juliana Gray, G R A Y. Uh, yeah, we we that was before uh, Fifty Shades came around. So now yeah. uh, it's, it's not EY, it's it's AY. But uh, uh, yeah, all things gray. You know, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. So, so what but, are you working on now? What are you writing now? I just turned in uh, my my manuscript for next year, uh, and that sort of juggles back and forth between uh, 1964 Manhattan and 1914 Berlin before right before uh, the uh, outbreak of the First World War. And uh, and that was a lot of fun. The uh, the 1964 heroine really sort of jumped off the page for me, and she was uh, a lot of fun to write. She's, her name is Vivian, and she's uh, certainly a vibrant and outspoken character, which are always the best to write. Um, and then, as, as I said, I'm working on my next uh, Juliana Gray trilogy. I'm, I'm working on, I think, book three it is uh, right now. So definitely keeping busy. Uh, I have a Hunting Summers releasing on May 30th, and uh, my Juliana Gray book, How to Tame Your Duke, uh, is coming out on uh, on June 4th. So it's it's a bit busy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, um, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning uh, more? 
just at www.beatricewilliams.com. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, and uh, and the Juliana Gray names as well are just julianagray.com and uh, Facebook is Juliana Gray. And Twitter as well. BC Williams Books is my Twitter handle. You would think that Beatrice Williams, especially with a Z, uh, B-E-A-T-R-I-Z, would be... Uh, uh, would would not be a common name uh, out there, but actually there were several Beatrice Williamses, so I had to fiddle <laughs> around quite a bit before I got a coherent Twitter handle. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Well, again, we've been speaking with Beatrice Williams. Her new novel, A Hundred Summers, is in bookstores now. Beatrice, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.